Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is John Giordano. John has an amazing story of uh, starting up so many treatment centers and helping so many people with addictions. So I think you're going to love this episode, especially if you're interested in addiction. My name is Noor Kidwai. Check me out on Instagram at Noor Kidwai. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. We're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so please check that out too. Let's get into this week's episode. My guest this week, John Giordano. Alright, welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm here with John Giordano. John, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's my pleasure and my honor. <laughs> this is going to be fun, man. Um, you have such a unique story. Um you you you've uh, have a background with addiction and um, you actually came out of it. You uh, recovered and then you actually like started your own treatment centers and helped people overcome their addictions. And you've been doing that for like what is it now? Thirty years. Thirty. Uh, it's going on thirty-five years. Yeah, that's uh, that's a uh, like such an amazing story. Um, can you maybe give my audience just a little bit of a background of like uh, yeah where you came from and then like how this all kind of started? Okay. Well, where I came from was a pretty crazy place. My family is like a, a mafia-type family. Okay. My father was a heroin dealer. My uncle was a hitman. My other relatives did other nefarious things. Mm. Uh, so I came from a pretty wild family. Uh, to give you a little excerpt, it's in my book, uh, The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. Mm. I wrote my life story. And when I had my wedding, my uncle threw my wedding when I was 20. And uh, the caterer insulted him in front of the family. Well, that was a big mistake. The next morning, they found him dead. The caterer, that is. And we had to leave town real quick because the detectives were going over to my grandmother's house. Anyway, uh, you know, that's that's the type of family I had. And, And what goes on is that as time went on, uh, I got into, I said I would never do drugs because uh, I was a karate champion and, you know, I didn't um, do anything. And I got into drugs when I was about, uh, about 20, 19, when I was about 19 years old. And what happened was all of my, all of my clients would come to my class high. And what would happen was I would say, okay, you want to come high? Good. So I would work them out until their arms fell off. See, yeah. and they would, you know, they would get sick and they would, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, they would come back the next day and get high again. I'm saying, they said, well, sensei, you should try it. I said, I don't need that stuff. Well, what happened one day, I did try it. And I happened to do LSD. Oh, wow. And I was on a trip for, I didn't know what it was. Uh, my neighbor had a vial about, you know, about this big full of clear liquid. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is about 1965. So what happened was I, I said, oh, what's this? It's LSD. So I did the whole thing. Jeez, that's a lot of LSD. <laughs> well, what happened was it was enough for five hits. 
Damn. As they say. So I was on a journey for three days. Wow. You know, doing that. So I started with that. And I went along the line and I started smoking pot. And then I started doing other drugs. And to, to make the story short, um, I wind up getting an intervention done on my, my family did an intervention on me so I can go to treatment. Mm. And uh, I was really getting crazier and crazier. I was 37 years old. Uh, I'd led two lives. One life, I was teaching the police department self-defense. and uh, I was doing all of that. And then here I am selling drugs. Yeah. So what went on is that um, I was in treatment anyway. I had a spiritual awakening in treatment two weeks in. And what is that? Well, you know, I was raised a Catholic and they were talking about God. I said, look, I don't want to join any new religions, <laughs> you know? Uh, so the bottom line was, is that uh, one day it was Christmas time. I remember it was Christmas Eve. I wanted to go home and they wouldn't let me go home. So I started like ranting and raving and I went back to my room. I punched the door. I was so upset, you know, and the really reason I wanted to go home was not to be with the kids and the wife was I used to get presents from my friends of Coke. Mm. So that's what the real story was. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I remember in my head that the, the therapist told me, do you ever uh, pray on your knees? I says, look, man, I'm a Catholic. That's all they do is I got calluses on my knees. <laughs> so, all right. So what happened was uh, I, it was in my head. So uh, he said, well, Clint, you should try it. And I keep hearing that voice, right? So the, what I said back to him was, well, you mean if I'm in the closet, God doesn't hear me, you know? So, you know, I was like really messed up. Anyway, uh, when I got angry, I didn't get angry, I got rageful. And it took days for me to calm down. Mm -hmm. So what had happened was I went to try to get down on my knees. And I noticed it may sound a little strange to your viewers and to you, but I couldn't get my knee down. And that was really weird. So I'm pushing my knee down and then I finally pushed my other knee down. And for the first time, in my life, I pray for whatever God is, his will or her will, okay? Mm -hmm. And my anger went away. My rage went away. I mean, I, I don't know how to explain that. Now, as sick as I was, I tried to get it back, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work. And that was kind of my turning point in treatment. Okay. And then as, as years went, as, as time went by, it was about 14 months I opened up my first treatment center and it was, uh, the way I opened it up was, first of all, I got divorced from my wife. We, we tried to make it work for a year, it didn't work. She was still doing coke and I, I couldn't be around that anymore. And um, I didn't believe in these meetings, but I went anyway, because that's what they said to do. And I would say to them, I said, look, man, when is this going to get better? They said, did you use today? I said, no, it already got better, John, mm. okay? And then about the God issue in these meetings, they said, like you say, what do you think about God? Well, here's what they did with me. One of the old timers came up and says, John, uh, how about God? I said, look, man, I, I don't want to join a new religion. I, you know, the meetings are great. He says, no, no, no. I said, he says, G-O-D. I said, look, I know how to spell, okay? <laughs> so he says, no, 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 G-O-D, good orderly direction. I said, that I can handle. Yeah, yeah. That was my God for about a couple of years. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and time went on and, and that treatment center didn't work out because um, my, the partners that I had just 
didn't do the right things. I'll put it that way to you. Mm -hmm. So not to get into all this stuff. So I got, I got over that. Uh, then I opened up another treatment center and I wind up with another partner that was no good. Uh, I'm a street kid. You mess with me, I punch you in the face. Mm -hmm. okay, now I'm in recovery. I can't do that anymore. And I didn't get any lawyers to, you know, do all the paperwork. So I worked at a homeless shelter. Okay, after a while, I was the clinical director there with a 55-bed unit with people from, with HIV and people that had uh, um, been eating out of dumpsters and that were dual diagnosed. That means they had a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a year, which was kind of wild because it was an OTC, they call it. You know, and what that means is that, you know, they put you in the middle of the room, they beat you up, and then they build you back up again. Okay. And, you know, one of those. Yeah, and, yeah. And I said to myself, I didn't know about anybody else. I didn't need anybody beat me up. I did a good enough job on my own, beating myself up. Mm -hmm. But so as, as the story goes, um, one day they used to feed them cake and chocolates and at lunchtime, because we used to get our food, our food donated. And what they would do is the clients would act out afterwards. All you the know. sugar? <laughs> yeah, well, give the sugar to your kids. Let me know how you do. Yeah, yeah. So, and then what we do, we would take them out. We would put them on this bench to put a sign around their neck. Okay. And I said, what are we doing? We were causing them to act like this. Now we're putting a sign on them. What, what kind act. of sign is this? Oh, like, I should act properly. Uh, oh, know, like trying to like of, shame them kind of thing. Yeah, like All these different kinds of stupid things. Okay. So I resigned. I couldn't deal with it anymore. And then uh, I met this girl and she said, why don't you open up your own treatment center? I said, oh man, I had enough of treatment centers. You know? <laughs> so she said, no, why don't you try it? So I opened up a treatment center. I had $300 in my bank account. That was it. Because I also had a spending addiction. Every money I got, I just spent. Mm. So I had that problem also. And what happened was I wind up opening up this treatment center, a friend of mine had this little 745 foot square room uh, and I had a treatment center and I started that with 300 and just to make it go through everything, uh, I hooked up with one of my friends that I worked with, another therapist as my partner. And then we got his son who's a genius with the internet. And 18 years later, we sold it for 45 million. Yeah, that's amazing. Which is like a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. You know? And we never really cared about the money. All we cared about was helping people. I still do. Mm -hmm. I still do these podcasts. I still I write books. Uh, I lecture. Uh, it's about helping the, the human race. You know, I, like I hear all about this, oh, the blacks and the whites and the Asians, we're all earthlings. Mm. I think we got to start looking at life that way. No, I agree. Start, you're going to start going into space you're going to end finding aliens or whatever. You're going to find out all you are is an earthling. Yeah. No, 100%. A different, a different shade of an earthling. Let's put it that way. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, true that. Um, so, like, yeah, this is, like, this is quite an amazing story, man. Um, I, one thing I'm interested in, so, like, what did you learn, like, uh, going through all these different treatment centers when you had an addiction? And, like, why did, like, that make you go, I want to start my own? And, like, what makes your treatment center? That's a great question. I'm going to tell you what I did. You know, I, you know, I'm also a national karate champion, black belt hall of fame and all that other kind of stuff too. Mm -hmm. And so I have an Eastern philosophy also, you know, in my head, mm -hmm. but 
what I looked at treatment, and most people don't know, right now I'm trying to get on Biden's uh, um, opiate uh, task force. Okay. So, you know, I'm sending letters and I don't know if they reach them, but I keep doing it. Treatment centers are 70 years behind the times. That far, and, you think, eh? Okay, well, no, I know. And not even oh, think. Yeah, I'll you tell you why. Know. I'll tell you why I know. Okay. Okay. In 1950, two young students got together. One was wanted to be a psychiatrist, the other one wanted to be a psychologist. And they came up with no experience now with a 28-day model for alcoholism. And the Hazelton got a hold of it, and then it spread throughout the country. All right, but that was based in 1950 model. This is 221, mm -hmm. okay? So what happens is, first of all, drugs are much more devastating. That alcohol is devastating, but drugs are much more devastating to the brain. Mm -hmm. they, it's a quick route to destroying your brain. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is over time. So uh, I looked at it and I said to myself, you know, this is crazy. We're not looking at people comprehensively, we're looking at them psychologically. Most people don't know this, but your microbiome, that's your, your gut, your yep. flora in your gut, right? Or mm -hmm. microbiota, okay? Is where 90% of dopamine and serotonin are manufactured. Really? Now, I know that. I know a lot of people don't. And this is science, you can just go look it up. I always tell people, don't believe a word I tell you, please go on the internet, look for yourself, mm -hmm. you know? and. So 90% of that is in your gut. And then it goes up your vagus nerve to your brain and deposits the dopamine and serotonin. So if your gut's messed up, your brain's going to be messed up. And people don't understand that. You can have what is known as leaky gut syndrome. In your intestines there, um, start to leak food into where it doesn't belong and your nutrients don't get absorbed properly. You got H. pylori. You got hyperglycemia. Now, what do these things have in common? Well, you can get depression and anxiety and also suicidal ideation, believe it or not, mm. okay? Then you can have a closed head injury, which causes behavioral problems. Now, I tell most people, do you think drugs damage the brain? They go, absolutely. I said, that's a closed head injury. You don't have to get hit with a hammer. You know, the drugs are a big enough hammer. Mm. So then you got your thyroid. If you have a low thyroid, you can have depression and anxiety. Right? Mm -hmm. No simple stuff. If you have low testosterone, you're going to have depression and anxiety. Then if you have heavy metals, toxicity, okay, like mercury, lead, antinomy, all of these different uh, heavy metals in your body, it causes a disruption in your brain with neurotransmission, and it can mimic hyper uh, um, attention deficit disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, so there's a lot of co-contributing factors to addiction and mental health that we're not looking at. Mm. We're only and, looking at the, the psychological part. Yeah, yeah. And so you're saying like these uh, things like uh, your leaky gut or all of these things can drive addiction? Of course. Well, an addict, since I'm an addict, I'm 36 years clean now. We're feel-good junkies. We don't want to feel bad. So if we're not feeling good, we're going to take a behavior or a substance to change that. Yeah. And uh, I, I love that because I've, uh, I've like seen people who are trying to change the stigma on addiction and try to understand like a lot of these guys are trying to take substances to make them feel better, to make them 
because they're in pain or some something like that, uh, right? Yeah, they're medicating, and they, what they're medicating is is a mental health issue also. You mm-hmm. see, so when your brain's out of whack, your body, your guts out of whack, and your brain's out of whack, and your whole body's out of homeostasis, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to medicate. Yeah. Now, true. I work with Dr. Uh, uh, Kenneth Blum. Dr. Blum is the geneticist who found the addiction gene. There is an addiction gene. Okay. That's real. Go look it up. And I work with him, and we call it RDS, Reward Deficiency Syndrome. So what does that all mean? Is That means you don't have receptor sites in your brain to get dopamine. See? Okay. So you can, everybody has a different footprint. Number one, you can be, uh, go towards heroin. Another guy towards cocaine. But there's also other things that cross addicted. And there's also other things that sex addiction. Mm-hmm. There's uh, gambling addiction. There's spending addiction. Uh, there's work addiction. And people say, well, what does that all mean? Well, if you're out of balance and you continue, continue to do a substance or a behavior in spite of adverse consequences, I believe that's an addiction. Mm-hmm. You see? So that's what you have to look at. We're not looking at people comprehensively, holistically. So yeah. That's, that's the missing thing. And holistically, I love the, how you use that word too, because like we need to start looking at the whole body, the whole person, like everything around it. You can't just come in and just be like, oh, this person's addicted to cocaine. Like, let's go through the cocaine procedure or something like that. Right? Well, what happens is this, is that look, psychological piece, if you look at it, since I'm Italian, we put it this way, like a pizza, okay? <laughs> so each slice is a part of your life. Mm-hmm. You got the spiritual part, you got the physical, you got the mental, you got the emotional part. You got all these different parts of you, okay, that need to be uh, in harmony in order to have a balanced, productive life. So what happens in addiction treatment centers, they're only looking at the psychological piece. Mm. They're not looking at the rest of it, like we just said about closet injuries, all these other things. So you may talk therapy, you may get them you know, on track a little bit, but if they have these other things that are causing depression and anxiety, you know, what we do is we throw medications at them. Mm-hmm. This medication, that medication. So can I ask you then, like, why would these like treatment centers, um, like, why are they only looking at one slice of the pizza? Okay, like- that's another good question. So here's the problem insurance companies run the treatment centers. Ah, shit. No ticky, no shirty, no money, can't do treatment, right? Yeah. So they do what the insurance company tells them that they will pay for. Yeah. So like a more comprehensive treatment would, would it be because it's too too expensive or yeah? No, they just don't, it's not in their wheelhouse. Do they even think about it? Like, are like, are they aware of this stuff? You think, like, uh, well, look at it this way: insurance companies are a business, mm-hmm. okay? So they're into not paying you; you're into getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> hey, well, when you put it that way, I guess. <laughs> but that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And then you also have the pharmaceutical companies, where people don't realize we're walking cash registers for them. Mm. Take this pill. Take that pill. All right. I'm not against medication. I I don't want to make anybody think I'm against medication. But what I'm against is, why don't we see why this is happening 
instead of just throwing medications at it. Mm-hmm. I, I you know what I mean? Uh, I 100% agree. 100% agree. Um, so let's say now then you're at this, your treatment center and the new patient comes in. So like, how do you like uh, do this fully comprehensive like review well, of this patient? Okay, well, see, I had a treatment center, right? My treatment center. Uh, and we were known all over the country for what we were doing. Nobody did what we did. Mm. First of all, we did research. I'm currently now in 75 medical and scientific peer reviewed journals. That's awesome. I work with scientists and researchers from 25 universities. Nice. And I lecture all over the world about this stuff. And it's really interesting. I was in, uh, in Taipei and I was lecturing to neuroscientists and researchers and clinicians about what we're talking about, the gut and the brain and all. After my lecture, a whole bunch of them came up to me and they go, you know, we never thought of that. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if you look at it this way, how do you treat a patient if you don't look at the, everything? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. You see, they're so used to a model where, all right, daddy left you with three, mommy beat you up, you were uh, uh, molested when you were 10. Uh, so therefore you got this, 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 and that. It's like a cookbook. Yeah, yeah. See? So all of that is a part of it and an important part, but that's not all of it. Mm. See, and that's what's missing. And no one's looking at it. You know, it's like you go to a doctor, gives you a physical. If you really look at the physicals they give you, they're very cursory. They're not really in-depth physicals. No, they're, they're really not. Okay, so what are they treating then? No, it's <laughs> true. Like, I, it seems like they're just kind of like looking for like uh, any really superficial outer stuff that might be like seem wrong. But besides that, they're not really looking to see if you're really healthy as like a whole person. It's like, what are we doing? Uh, uh, medical, they're doing the same thing. Doctors are getting less and less money from the insurance companies. They have to see more and more people. Mm. And what kind of, what does that mean as far as care? Yeah. No, you're the, in and out, you're in and out, you're in and out. I've, I've been noticing this like as a trend, like everywhere. Um, yeah, and like, you're right. Like, it's probably like money and big money that's like really kind of driving these things. And like, it's like, it seems like less and less care, but it almost seems like that's in every freaking industry, less and less, you get less and less of quality and everything. It feels like, I guess like, uh, and you're like, cause where you're at, you're trying to fight this from the other side and actually try to like build something that like more people can use. Like, do you see like a lot of uh, different people? Cause you're saying you're talking with so many universities and scientists, like, you see like a lot of people are going to start taking this kind of treatment, like make it hopefully one day it can become mainstream. Well, I tell you what's interesting. We did hyperbaric medicine. Are you familiar with that? No. Okay. Hyperbaric is a uh, uh, oxygen under pressure. They used it originally for the bends. You know, when you go diving deep and you get, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and then they found that it heals wounds. Oh, okay. And I work with a Dr. Paul Harch, who's a pioneer in hyperbaric medicine, who went to the Senate with Dr. Williamson and they, they, the Senate agreed, okay, to do hyperbarics for people in the VA that were diabetic instead of cutting their arms off and their legs, uh, hyperbarics healed the wounds. Wow. No, they didn't have to do that. So Israel just came out with a, uh, a science paper. Most people don't know this stuff, mm -hmm. okay? 
Uh, I'm one of these nerds that are into all this stuff. Uh, now, you're familiar with what telomeres are. Yeah, <clears throat> so that's at the end of your chromosomes, right? Right. Okay. So as you get older, the, those, those little strings, okay, get shorter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Israel just found out that hyperbarics, okay, you do it for five days a week for three months at an atmosphere of two for 90 minutes a session, they increase the telomeres 20%. And yeah, and telomeres like, like uh, unheard of. Yeah, and telomeres are supposed to be like uh, that's like your a biological healthy- age. That's yeah, your biological age. That's your chronological age. Yeah, exactly. So, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So, if you're increasing it by twenty percent, that's like basically giving you extra days to live on the earth, pretty much. That's right. right. Now, there's micronutrient tests that you need to take because if your if your body doesn't have the proper nutrients, <clears throat> you're out of balance. Mm. It's real simple stuff, you know. But we 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 don't uh, <clears throat> we're not looking at it. Mm-hmm. So, can I ask you then, like? Cause like we're talking about like leaky gut syndrome and like, and a lot of stuff that has to do with your biome and stuff. So like, is diet a really important part then with your treatment? Well, let's put it this way. You know, I was giving, I give you a funny answer for that one. <laughs> I was doing a lecture up in Gainesville to the addiction doctors. Okay. To about 50 addiction doctors. And uh, I was talking about taking nutrients and they were saying to me, look, uh, one of the guys raised his hand, one of the doctors says, John, if you eat properly, you don't need to take any kind of vitamins. I said, well, doc, I'll tell you what, look around the room and let me know who eats properly. The whole place broke up laughing. Okay. <laughs> Wait, who was the, you know, I mean, it was hilarious. And then if you look how our food is growing, the soils are depleted. Yeah. They got, they're spraying all kinds of bug spray. If it's killing the bugs, it could be killing us too. Mm. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are going on with our food supply. They got processed food. Everything is, is money-based. So we, we have to make things last longer, okay? Mm-hmm. And they're making our lifespan shorter uh, by all these processes. Yeah, and like like we were talking about, like quality is going down while like profits are going up. Well, that's what's going on. I think this is a dark time in our world today. It's, we, we got to where it's money, power, and control. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of looking at helping each other as human beings, Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's a sad case, but all we can do is the best we can do with what we have, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, diet is very important, but also taking the, the right kind of nutrients. Now, what most people push back about taking nutrients, they go, well, there's no regulatory on the nutrients. If you look at a label that says GMP, okay, that's an independent research on what you're manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So there's a third party involved in there. So that's usually really good nutrients because other nutrients they make, they put fillers in it. They, you don't know what the heck they're doing in there. Sometimes what they say is in there is not in there, you know? So you have to learn how to traverse through all the garbage. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do my best to teach people about. No, uh, that's, uh, I can't complain about that. So like, and then that's like, uh, so when, when you have somebody who has like leaky gut syndrome, can you like, do you diagnose that? And then like, how do you treat that? Yes, well, they can diagnose that. They can do H. pylori with your breath. You can tell. Uh, what they do is they give, um, you get probiotics. Prebiotics are very important. See, probiotic, look at a probiotic, as a, which is a bacteria, a good bacteria, mm-hmm. as a seed. 
when okay. you take a probiotic. Now, prebiotic is the rain, okay? Oh, okay. It helps that seed grow. Oh, okay. Otherwise, it dies over time, see? So, and then you take enzymes with your food. So that's real important also. See, there's a whole list of things. I can speak for hours on this about we don't have that much time to do that. <laughs> but there's a bunch of things you can do to strengthen your well-being. Look, we got COVID, all right? Now, if you build up your immune system, okay, that's what helps you fight things. Mm -hmm. Most people's immune systems, they're no good. Pretty bad, Number yeah. one. Number two, I'm 74. I'll be 75 in August. I don't take any medications. I'm in great shape. I work out five days a week. You know, I mean, you want to live? See, living longer is not the issue. It's living longer with a quality of life. Is no, that's, that's 100%. Yeah. See? So, you know, a lot of these young people, uh, they better wake up. You know, they're vaping. They're doing all this crazy stuff. You know, no good. It, it catches up to you. I, I 100% agree. Um, even like with my diet, I've like uh, noticed like when I see like once I started turning 30, like I, I just noticed like it gave me like uh, problems and stuff just with my diet. And I had to change it and really focus on like eating healthy. And yeah, you're right. It's quality of life over like quantity, of course. Well, you'll notice you'll get older. You'll start seeing, listen, we're like, we're like, I look at it like I'm an old car. The fenders start falling off, you know, the <laughs> lights not working anymore. The engine is, you know, seizing up. You know <laughs> <what I mean? laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got to really like work with yourself. You know, what's, listen, money is wonderful. It makes things a lot, you know, a lot easier. But I was homeless when I first started my journey. When I got divorced, I didn't tell you that part of the story. I wound up being homeless. I, my wife had the car, she had the house, she had everything. And I had no place to live. So a friend of mine lent me a room in a hotel that he owned. And that's how I started my journey, with nothing. I had a bicycle that somebody loaned me. I had a jar that I put quarters in when I had quarters. And, you know, what I wind up doing is I wind up saying, you know, this is where I am now. I started to get depressed, you know, and I said, oh, I, I got clean and sober for this. What is going on here? And, and then eventually one day I, I sat down and I said, you know, I got to make the most of it. This is where I am right now. And I, I got to be honest with you, I really enjoyed myself. I would take my bicycle on the boardwalk down to Miami Beach and, and ride late at night in the ocean and the and look at the stars. I started to appreciate where I was. I wasn't, you know, and laying in bed, stoned, looking up at the ceiling, you know. I, I was actually being part of the universe again, mm. part of life. I was becoming human again. Mm -hmm. Because when you do drugs and alcohol, you become an inhuman human. Mm. You're selfish, you're self-centered, you don't care about yourself or anyone else. Mm. So when you make that transition, which is time, um, you're going to have ups and downs, you know? All right, that's life. Yeah. You know, when people complain about oh, this is happening, that's happening. So let me tell you something. If nothing's happening in your life, that means you're dead. Mm -hmm. Right? We yeah. all have our stuff. Nothing goes perfect. I'm not saying my diet's perfect or everything I do is perfect. No. You know? Yeah. But I, do I can't. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like, honestly, like, uh, just with me, like, I remember, like, 
I think in my 20s, especially, I always had that mindset of like, oh, like one day you'll do something and then everything will be perfect and then life will be easy and everything's just going to be hunky dory. But like the truth is, that's just a poisonous mindset because like that's just not how life works. Like you have to understand there's ups and downs and you have to accept that like in a certain extent. So it when those downs happen, it doesn't give you so much suffering. Well, you know, uh, you know, Sometimes pain is a real good motivator, mm. you know? And it all depends how you look at life and your perceptions of life and what's important to you. You know, as you get older, you'll see, you'll, you'll think that's, you know, I'm, I'm not the same guy I was when I was 37 years old. Mm. I was not the same guy when I was 20. You look at life totally different. Could you imagine going back in time to you when you were 16 and trying to talk to you? <laughs> yeah it would be different <laughs> how far would you really get yeah you know? he'll probably be like you lost your hair what the hell happened <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say to me you know? so you know it's it's a matter of um enjoying a moment at a time mm-hmm. that's all we have mm-hmm. and whether you believe in god you don't believe in god i believe in an energy uh i believe in spirituality learn to be kind instead of right do your best not to lie, cheat, or steal, or hurt yourself or another human being, and reach out and help somebody less fortunate than you. And the payback is unbelievable. My life has been unbelievable. That's why I wrote the book, like I was telling you, The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. It's to help motivate people to show them, no matter if you're a drug, I only went to the ninth grade. You know, and then I, when I got clean, I went and got my GED, and then I went to school. But I started from less than zero. Mm. And, you know, I, I always tell people, if you think your family's bad, I'll own your mind. You know, see how you do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love that. You know? um, all right. I, I actually do want to talk a little bit about, like, your karate background, because like you were saying, like, uh, you do, you're influenced a little bit by, like, a little bit of Eastern philosophy. And, like, just uh, from, like, talking to you so far, like, I can kind of see a little bit of that, like, can you maybe uh, like um, let me know like how kind of karate has influenced uh, this like your course in life? Well, yeah, the, the karate when I studied, I started in 1962 in judo and jujitsu. I, I was fortunate enough to study in the three grand masters. And it was very different than today. Today's karate, uh, there's very few people that really teach real, it's a martial art. We turned it into a, a, a sport and we also turned our country into Rome, where these guys are killing each other in the ring. You know? Oh, okay, yeah. So you're kind of talking a little bit like MMA kind of thing? Or? Yeah, MMA and all this kind of stuff. These guys are going to have some serious brain injuries. Okay. You know, just like football and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's their choice, and that's where they're at. The, the martial arts that I, I studied um, was a martial art. I mean, it's the self-defense and teach you how to kill somebody. Mm. There's no rules, you know, mm-hmm. with that. And uh, what it did for me, it taught me discipline. It taught me how to focus. It taught me how to work through pain. Mm. Uh, my, my, my karate teacher was a Marine DI. That's a Marine drill instructor. Mm. And the way he taught us, like I'll give you an example. When I was in class in the summertime, okay, we would have to shut the doors and the windows and put on the heat. And then he would make us do what's called duck walks and push-ups on your knuckles. So they were bleeding. 
hold your shoes in your hand until you, you, you wanted to collapse and cry. Uh, you know, if you threw up, you had to pick it off the mat, put it in your uniform and walk it off. <laughs> then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in the wintertime, we had just down to our pants. And if it snowed out, the doors and windows would be open. And we're waking in the freezing cold. And then you had to run around the block. Mm. You know, uh, everything we did was to push you beyond your limits. Mm-hmm. Because he was a Marine. That's what, he, that's what they did in boot camp. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how I learned. And I became a national karate champion. And uh, like I said before, Black Belt Hall of Fame. And now I'm a grandmaster in the martial arts. That means a 10th degree black belt is as high as you can go. Wow. And, uh, but there's a guy who's wearing 10th degree black belts. It's like a, a joke. Okay. People are giving belts out like they're uh, chocolate. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah. So, you know, karate has changed tremendously. The oh. martial arts has changed. See, I teach special forces. I teach police officers in the hand combat. It's a different world out there. You know, it's a totally different world. And, um, and karate needs that spirituality. It needs that backbone. It needs that, uh, to be respectful. Uh, today, it's, I don't know. So you're, yeah, okay. So you're kind of saying like it's lost that, um, it's lost the spirituality kind of aspect. Yeah, it lost the Zen attitude of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more about winning tournaments and it's more about, you know, all this stuff. Look, it's going to a transition. Everything has a circle. It, it'll circle back. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's actually a good uh, way to say it. Like it, everything has that circle, it'll cycle back kind of thing. Well, I think it needed to go where it's going. Uh, in order for it to grow. And then there are, there are a handful of people that teach what I call the real martial arts. Mm. You know, not just about fighting or, or beating somebody up, but how to teach people how to center themselves, how to face their fears. Yeah. You know? Hell yeah. And, and, and how to become better human beings. Mm-hmm. You know? See, because a lot of people are insecure. You know, it's, what people don't understand, when you enter into a karate school, Okay, I'll give you an example. When I started, I was in gangs early on. And then one day we were driving by a karate school and he says, hey, and I was uh, 14 and a half. I said, let's go up and beat the karate teacher up. Because I was a street fighter. And I says, you know, karate, what is that? Baloney, right? So we went up and the, the karate teacher, they were not ending the class. I had to get back home. Otherwise my father would hit me with the belt if I was two minutes late. No, and no. we went back the next day and I, I wanted to join, but I was only 14 and a half. And at the time, you, they didn't have kids' classes, no such thing. Uh, you had to be 15. So my father finally, you know, signed the paper for me to go. And I went back in and it was a jujitsu class. I thought it was a karate, but it wasn't. So we were sitting around in a circle. I'll never forget this, man. They had this short little guy with a round face, cylinder type arms, you know, short guy. And um, he's, uh, I'm looking at it in my mind, I'm saying, what is this, a joke? Ha, ha, you know? ha, ha, ha. So he, he, he was, he's asking for a, uh, a volunteer to show how to block a punch. So I raise my hand right away and I jump up, right? And he's talking to class and I try to sneak punch him. Oh, shit. Well, <laughs> don't do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> I winded up on the floor. I had a foot in my throat. 
Wow. I didn't know how I got from point A to point B. And I had this round face looking down at me, smiling. I fell in love with the martial arts. I worked out seven days a week. I couldn't get enough of it. I left the gangs. I just worked out, trained and trained and trained. It was a mind boggling. I got all my anger and all my frustrations out. You know, I found a new kind of family. Yeah. So, you know, that's all that kids want when they're in gangs. They want a family, not that their family, you know, whatever their family is. But is that kind of, yeah, is that kind of what uh, your experience with gangs was? Like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, people kind of trying to find, like. Well, I was in a black gang. Hmm. And to get in the black gang, you had to fight somebody. Okay. And I stayed that gang for a while, but I kind of felt kind of funny in that gang. So I left. You know, I was the only white guy in the gang. It was mm. like, and I stood out like a sore thumb. And then uh, I went out with a Spanish girl and they had a Spanish gang. And I had to fight three guys to get in the gang if I wanted to continue dating the girl because her brother was the president. So <laughs> I fought the three guys. I got, I got banged around, but they got banged around too. You know, uh, this is before karate. Okay. And then I, I got rid of her. All right, we broke up. And then I wound up in an Irish gang. And these guys were funny. I mean, they would drink and, drug, you know, only drinking, no drugging. And at one o'clock in the morning in the bars, they would fight and go crazy. I mean, it was like nuts. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> so I, I was in all kinds of gangs. Yeah, so when yeah. we used to have a gang war with other facets, you know, uh, factions in the, in the neighborhood, I knew everybody because I was on all the different <laughs> Yeah, well, at least <laughs> nobody would be fighting with you. <laughs> be like, oh, he's on our team, right? <laughs> I, I became the, the, the war counselor. And most of the time, nobody, we didn't fight because I knew everybody. I said, well, you know, let's just make it up, you know. Oh, so, my God, that's crazy. Man, yeah, they should make a movie on your life. This is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you got to read my book. You're going to really like it. It's my whole life story. I'm 100% going to, man. Um, all right. Uh, just because, like, we are in these, like, lockdowns and stuff, uh, I did want to, like, kind of understand, like, I'm not sure what the lockdowns, but I'm, I'm in Canada right now, so we're still, like, in lockdowns where I'm at. Like, uh, how, how is this affecting, like, addiction right now? And, like, how is it affecting, like, any of these, like, big crises we have right now? All right. That's another thing. I, I wrote a bunch of articles on it. I'm trying to get on uh, CNN or ABC. I've been on all the television shows. If you ever go, go to my website, John, the letter J, Giordano.com. Okay. And you'll see all my stuff. Uh, what the problem is, is this. People are not going to meetings except they're going on what is known as Zoom, but it's not the same, mm. you know, for addiction. Uh, people are, are home. They can't go anywhere. They're getting depressed. People are losing their jobs, and, and, and it's getting really, people are getting divorced. We have, there's a pandemic, and what they're not looking at is we have an epi epidemic mm. going on. And 70%, seven, I'm sorry, 70,000 people died last year of drug overdoses. Shit. This year, they're looking at almost doubling it. Jesus. So it's getting really, and they're not even addressing it. And if they do, they're going to go back to the old model that there's only a 5 to 7% recovery rate. Yeah. Everybody that I went to treatment with, maybe except for one person, they're dead. Jesus. Yeah, 5 to 7%. That's a recovery rate of regular treatment centers? Yeah. How bad is that? 
Did your treatment center have a better recovery rate? I don't even want to tell you because you won't believe me, neither will anybody else. We did outcome studies, not our own, because I knew nobody would believe it. Mm-hmm. So I hired a third party. I had um, this guy, Stephen Schoenthaler, uh, a professor at Stanislaus University out of California. I had Dr. Blum. And they put together this whole thing where we had a follow uh, for a study. We had a three-quarter way house. That's where people live after treatment that are monitored. Uh, you know, they drop urines on them. They have to go to work. They have to go to meetings. And we... We made a contract with them that we wanted to know their behaviors compared to everybody else, number one. We wanted to know, number two, if they were using by dropping a urine. Number three, they would come to our treatment center once a week, the ones that are in town. The ones that were out of town, we had a, a, a different way of, of finding out if they're clean or not. But the ones in town, they would go to our meetings. We would drop urines on them too. Mm-hmm. We have eyeball to eyeball so we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. The ones out of town, we had it on Skype, mm-hmm. and we had their, their family or their significant other, we asked them how they're doing, not just the addict. The addict could be snorting coke, saying, yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And we, since Dr. Blum, you know, works for all these universities, he knew some people at MIT, and they had a software that could tell when people are lying. Oh, by the wow. inflections of their voice, by the tonalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And uh, we used that as well. We had, and I'm going to tell you what we did in treatment, then you'll understand. We had a 70%, 70%, okay, recovery rate for a year. Now, we did hyperbaric medicine, so we helped heal the brain. We did acupuncture. We did massage. Now, people say, oh, massage, that's fancy. No, we did lymphatic massage. That means it gets the drugs out of your body on a cellular level. The drugs are not just in your head, it's in your whole body. Yeah. See, we did neurofeedback. We did uh, light therapy. We did, we checked for uh, heavy metals. We checked for allergies because certain allergies can cause depression. Mm. Okay. We, um, we also did uh, meditation. We did guided imagery. We did uh, um, EMDR, which is for people that have PTSD. Hmm. Uh, we did, we had family groups. We had, we did a holistic approach yeah, to this. this like uh, so blood work. We looked at the thyroid. We looked at the gut. We looked at everything. We had amino acid therapy that we gave them. We have 15 papers in that, by the way, that shows that it upregulates dopamine. And how we did that is through a fMRI and CAT scans with the brain. Uh, I mean, we did stuff that anybody in the industry knew who we were. And I also, I worked with a Dr. Deborah Mesh, who is one of the leading scientists on plant medicine. I don't know if you're familiar with ibogaine. Oh, I've had a person who uh, ran an ibogaine treatment center on my podcast uh, last year. Okay, well, I'm one of the leading, supposedly, according to Dr. Mesh, leading experts on ibogaine. Really? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we had a treatment center, a detox center in uh, St. Kitts. Okay. So so I would go there for about 12 years, 14 years, I worked there with her. And I would go back and forth, bringing the clients, and then, you know, working in my treatment center. After they they left Ibogaine, they would come to my treatment center, and we would do the aftercare program with them. Mm. Uh, Ibogaine is an incredible, 
incredible drug. Yeah. It's, it really, really, I don't know what the, the person that was talking about it said, but you get detoxed in 24 to 36 hours, mm -hmm. where normally it would take you seven days if it was heroin or alcohol was five days or methadone could be 21 days or 30 days or 40 mm -hmm. days, depending on your metabolism and 24 hours. And it was done crazy. medically. See, a lot of the Ibogaine underground, they don't, they're doing their best. Their heart's in the right place. But you got to really look at this medically. You can't just look at this like, oh, we're going to take this and we're going to get rid of that. No. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We had, a, we had, before they came to us, we had a 24-hour heart monitor on them. Yeah. To make yeah. sure their heart was right. Uh, we did the blood work. We also did the toxicology to see what's on board. Because you want, if you have benzos on board, and you don't know that, you can kill them because mm. then they won't be able to breathe because Ibogaine at a higher dose lowers the threshold for breathing. Jeez. So we used to, um, then we, used to, we would, after they passed that, we would take them to the island, then we would give them blood work again, check their, their any drugs on board, and, and then do a, um, an EKG. And then we would put them in a, I would, my job was to prepare them for their journey into Ibogaine because Ibogaine, what it does, it puts you into a dream state for anywhere from eight to 12 hours, depending if you're a fast metabolizer, slow metabolizer, and how your liver's functioning. Hmm. So I would set that mindset for them to go in there to look at all the things that, that bother them, their emotional traumas, and I bring that all to the, to the front, see? And then they go into bed. And then we have a nurse by their bed, we have an IV in their arm, in case there's any kind of an event, we have a heart monitor on them. We put eye shades on them and then we put a headset on them. We give them a test dose, okay? We see 45 minutes, if they tolerate it, we give them a full dose. And mm. then when they come out 24 hours later, I sit down with them and I help them to figure out what they saw in their journey. Because what happens is you go back into, your, to make it simple, you go back into your childhood as an adult, and you have what is known as a cathartic experience mm -hmm. with the traumas in your life, things that you didn't even remember mm -hmm. happening. What it does is it goes to your hard drive, okay, in your brain. You know, like a computer, you erase something, you think it's gone? No, it's on your hard drive still. So it's the same thing with talk therapies that hits your frontal lobes and everything like that. But with this kind of medicine, it goes to the hard drive and gets it out of the core of what's driving everything. So mm -hmm. done under the right circumstances with the right people. Meanwhile, we did studies on it. Uh, unbelievable. Now they see in uh, psilocybin uh, for addiction, mm -hmm. looking at you know the mushrooms, uh, LSD for depression, anxiety, uh, ketamine. I was going to open up a ketamine uh, clinic until I went to Taipei and I was lecturing in Taipei, and I had four scientists that each one had a different. Uh, segment and on ketamine. Okay. And I, and I changed my mind real quick. They have an epidemic in Taipei of ketamine. Say that again. They have an epidemic of ketamine use. Oh, okay. In Taipei and Taiwan. Oh, and okay. what it does, it causes brain damage. It causes, uh, you know, a kidney uh, a failure it can cause. And, oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people so, start using it recreationally. Right. So when they do it medically, they do it at real low doses. You get six doses 
okay? Uh, and then maybe one dose every couple of months or one month, you know, one a month to help with your depression. But the problem is if you're an addict, you're gonna want more. Yeah, of course. All right, so they're gonna do it extra. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna cost, so I didn't wanna get into that. So like, uh, just cause we're kind of getting close to the end here. I was just wondering then like, uh, if anybody who's listening like has an addiction or like know somebody in like a serious addiction who needs recovery, and like you already talked about like how these treatment centers have like a five to 7% recovery rate. And like, the that's treatment not center- all of them. That's not no, all of them. No, that's, that's most of them. Yeah. So like, how do you find a treatment center with a better recovery rate or like, what would you recommend? That's a hard question. Hmm. I'll be honest with you. Really hard question because you can't go by anybody else's stats because if they're doing Okay, the testing, if they're doing it, they're going to tweak it. Now, if they have an outside company doing it, different ballgame. The okay. see, you know, see the recovery rates. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to see, uh, uh, that, we could, that's a whole other show. I'll yeah. be honest with you, because there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's, that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you. Yeah. Well, I uh, like no, I, I appreciate you coming on and telling me about this. Uh, yeah, the the name of the podcast is God, Yay or Nay, but you kind of went into that a few times in the in the podcast. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Well, all I can tell you is this: if if you really well, you don't have to go to treatment to get clean and sober. You can go to meetings, but unfortunately, the only meetings are on Zoom, which makes it a lot difficult for a lot of people to make that connection. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to help yourself. Uh, I'm for what works. I don't, I don't believe in one way. I believe in the way that works for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, me, I, I don't know how I got 36 years in recovery. Uh, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do any of that stuff. You know, I, I, I want to live a quality life. Mm-hmm. And I love helping people. That's why I do these things. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, money's great. Okay, but it ain't about money because money doesn't make people happy. They think it does. Okay, it's your soul and your inside of you that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Being at peace with yourself, you know, knowing that you're, you're the type of person that people will respect, not because you have things, mm-hmm. but because of who you are as a human being. And to me, that's the most important thing. Look, I, would, I was homeless to be a multimillionaire, and it's funny. When you don't have any money, all right, you want to make money. You worry about making money. When you do have money, you worry about losing it. So if you want to worry, you can get it at both ends of the stick. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's very true. <laughs> uh, yo, thank you so much, John. This was amazing. Um, please tell everybody about uh, your book, where they can get it, and also your podcast and uh, anything else you want to uh, promote. Please let my audience know. Okay, well, it's on Amazon. The kid from the South Bronx who never gave up. Okay. You know, and the other book is How to Beat Your Addictions and Live a Quality Life. All right. So I wrote that book, uh, you know, a little bit different than, you know, any other books that I did. Uh, I interviewed 200 addicts and alcoholics that I felt I could recover, not just quitting drugs and alcohol, but living a recovery lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I put what they said in the book and what they did and how they accomplished this. 
and what I did and how I accomplished what I did. Then I interviewed about 150 addicts and alcoholics who chronically relapsed over and over again. I wanted to know what they did or what they didn't do. And I put that into the book. And then there's uh, uh, recipes in there for eating you know, good food and there's uh, all kinds of things in, those, in that book. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. So they can go on Amazon as it, you know. All right. I'll uh, toss that in the podcast description. Uh, Yo, thank you so much, John. This was amazing. All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at NewerKidY on Instagram. Or check out my website, newerkidy.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, podcast network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.